card carrying Bayesian at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just uh, next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, the director of pitching development for the Baltimore Orioles. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball's post-game podcast, where we break down highlights from the week's two-hour radio show. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business in the Department of Statistics, and I'm one of the co-hosts and co-creators of our two-hour Wharton Moneyball show on Sirius XM 111, which airs on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. This week, we talked baseball with Rick Peterson, a friend of the show and a guest, a regular guest. Rick is the Director of Pitching Development for the Baltimore Orioles, and our second guest this morning was Carl Bialik, the lead writer for News at 538. Let's go to our first clip where Rick discusses the differences between the minor leagues and the major leagues and the chances that a minor league player eventually makes it to the major leagues. When you get to the big leagues for the first time, I mean, this is like a it's a dream come true is a really it's an understatement. This is like fantasy land. And and there, and the big leagues, the difference between the big leagues and the minor leagues as far as how the game is played, the cake is the same. But there's so much damn icing on that cake in the big leagues. You don't even know where the heck the cake is, Rick. Rick, I want when I want you, you to, to the big I want you to give us give our listeners a little bit of sort of statistical background on the probability of making it to the major leagues. So, uh, uh, getting drafted by itself is a, a tremendous accomplishment. But if you do get drafted, what fraction of drafted players are those who sign a minor league contract, a professional contract, but obviously not at the major league level? What fraction actually do get to play in the major leagues? Well, I mean, to get and stay in the big leagues, I'm, I'm going to say probably, I, I don't know, and I'm only guessing, maybe a 2 or 3%. You know, I mean, that, now yeah. to get to the big leagues, I mean, like like we've had a lot of our, our young pitchers this year get called up to the big leagues for the first time. And i got to tell you, I mean, a couple of them in particular, you know, they were only there for five, six, seven days. And when they came back and having a conversation with them about, you know, how you prepare you know, how you sequence pitches on flat ground, you know, early in the day or maybe a touch and feel in the bullpen, you know, where you're kind of preparing for tonight's game if you get in that game. It was like talking to somebody who just came out of law school as opposed to someone that just came out of elementary school. So what Rick is trying to tell us is that there's an incredible difference between the minors and the major leagues. First, in terms of probability of actually making it to the majors, a very, very few drafted players actually get to play. But he's also telling us that there's an enormous, enormous difference in the style or the environment of the major league compared to the minor leagues. In our second clip, Rick continues his discussion of the differences between the minors and the majors, specifically talking about first-round draft picks. So when a young player gets to the big leagues, and especially I would, my guess would be the Yankees, you know, because it's just such a storied franchise, and you put on those pinstripes, oh my gosh! I mean, that that's just like you know, I'm sure the character behind Mickey Mouse in the in the, mm. in the Magic Kingdom. That's a whole nother. That's level. a whole level. That, now, you, I would guess it's probably then about one in twenty drafted players maybe ever ever step foot in the major leagues. If you're saying two to three percent have a career, that's about one in forty or one in fifty. Right. And then right. about twice right. that actually step foot in the in the majors. Is that about right? Or are we talking about? Yeah, bigger? I'm, I'm guessing you're probably about right. You know, and and then and then when you look at the fact that you know all the number one draft picks that never get one day in the big leagues. Yeah. I mean, I mean that that's why the draft and what scouts go through. I mean, the predictability of what you can predict somebody to 
to get signed and play in the big leagues it's just it's off the charts it's not like any other sport because you know in, in the NBA and the NFL I don't know I don't know hockey but the chance of someone coming out of out of high level college football and walking into the NBA or the NFL and being a good solid player you know is very high yeah i can actually put a little stat on that for example mm-hmm. in the NFL I was just reading. I mean, Jared Goff was the number one uh, number one pick for the L.A. Rams uh, this offseason, and he's probably not going to start. It, it looks like he's not going to start the first week for the L.A. Rams. And I think he's the first number one pick quarterback not to start the first week since Jamarcus Russell. So Shane's point regarding number one draft picks in football offers a terrific contrast between the probability of making it to the professionals in football if you're a first-round draft pick, which is nearly 100%. And it's very unusual when someone doesn't make it. In contrast to baseball, very, very few even of the top picks eventually make it to the major leagues and even smaller numbers actually have a real career our next clip is rick peterson discussing tim tebow tim tebow is in the news in fact the prospects that he has of playing baseball are pretty dim but rick offers a really novel and interesting take on what he can bring to a team I think as much as from a, an organizational standpoint, I mean, Tim Tebow obviously is of the highest character level. You know, his preparation's off the charts. You know, everything that he does is exemplary. I mean, so if you can have a Tim Tebow, you know, impact your young players, you know, in the minor leagues, he, even though he may not be a major league player, you know, that, that's absolutely huge. You know, but, but, but as we were talking about the predictability of someone making it to the big leagues, you know, 29 years old, you know, realistically, you know, you're talking at least two or three years in the minor leagues in order to get, you know, somewhere probably around 1,200 plus ABs at, bat, at bats in order to adjust to, to mm-hmm. professional pitching, you know, I think is reasonable um, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, so, you know, when you look at it from that standpoint, you're talking about 31, 32 years old, you know, but again, I think the impact that he can have on the character and the makeup of the players that he's around, I I think would be, it's unmeasurable. That was an amazingly insightful comment by Rick. One of the things that we've been talking about, Tim Tebow, is his essentially zero probability of actually having an impact on the major league level in baseball. And what Rick is telling us is that what Tim Tebow can bring to the minor league system is a sense of professionalism, a sense that he can communicate to other young, young players what it takes to become a star or what it takes to become successful. Tim Tebow is a tremendous performer, not just as an athlete, but also in terms of mental preparation. And his example is an example that young players can follow and that a team who brings Tim Tebow to their system can benefit enormously from that. And I think it's an incredibly fresh take on Tim Tebow that you're really not hearing about in the, in the, in the press today. Our next clip will be a interview or part of an interview with our guest, Carl Bialik, and he'll be talking about the tremendous players Serena Williams and Novak Djokovic and their probabilities of winning in tennis. We, we started the tournament pretty aggressive towards the favorites, towards the number one player, Serena Williams, Novak Djokovic. And we were giving each of them slightly greater than a 50% chance of winning the title, even though you have to win seven matches. So if those were 50-50, everyone would have less than a 1% chance. So that's just how good we thought they were. Mm-hmm. Or how and bad you thought their stage, opponents were. Yeah, but it's, it's both. I mean, I think if we had a different field, if we were doing this in the late 90s, it would be interesting to go back and actually do the math. But I think we would have had lower numbers mm-hmm. in the age of, like, Kafelnikov and people like that winning majors on the men's side or maybe eight years ago when Serena Williams wasn't as dominant as she is now, bizarrely, even though she was supposedly at her age peak, I think it wouldn't have been quite that high. Anyway, we uh, 
we, we are now giving her, she needs to still win those three matches, as I said. We're giving her a 60% chance, so it really hasn't gone up that much, partially because, as you say, the early rounds can be so deterministic. Also, because most of the other favorites who she would only have to face in the later rounds have made it through, so she's not going to have any easy matches from here, and you don't really know that for sure early in the tournament. And then Novak Djokovic, who's won five rounds, he won or I should say he advanced through his fifth round yesterday. Three of those rounds he advanced without completing the match because of injured opponents. He now has a 70% chance of winning those last two matches and then winning his 13th major title. So what Carl is trying to break down is how the probability of winning really changes as the tournament progresses and really what goes into those calculations. Serena Williams had a pretty easy first few rounds, and so her probability didn't really change. Her probability began at 50%, and it wasn't too much higher. Of course, um, this is uh, post-show. I can point out at this point that Serena Williams was eliminated. And uh, the interesting part about a probability forecast, of course, is the model itself, not the actual outcome. And I don't criticize or, or, or try to undermine the 538 model. I think it's a good one. Novak Djokovic is, of course, still in the tournament. He has a, a higher than 70% probability of, of defeating his opponents and, and being the champion. And Carl Bialik will now take us through some other interesting aspects of tennis. In tennis, what's the role of college coaching, college teams? Does it have a role at all, or is it completely dominated by the professional academies? It's having a growing role in recent years, partly because it turns out that you can be older and still be good at tennis in a way that I don't think people appreciated before. So, for instance, I mentioned the three top American men, and two of them went through college, John Isner and Steve Johnson, and they've said that they kind of needed that time, that they weren't ready yet to compete in the pros, and they're probably players of about their ability who did go straight to the pros, played for four years and were nowhere, got discouraged and quit. So they came on the pros and were able to compete pretty quickly. Steve Johnson had an incredible career at USC and came to the pros with clear limitations in his game, but also with incredible experience about how to play matches and tactics and preparation, and rose very quickly and helped fill the gaps in his game, but started from well above zero in terms of preparation to play. So that was Carl talking about colleges and the increasing tendency of young American players to actually go to college. Historically, that was very rare. Tennis players' careers were, were began very young, and there was a lot of money to be made. And I think what's been happening, and Carl was pointing out, is that as the uh, things change in terms of training and availability of resources. The young American male players in particular are becoming better at a later age and they, they use college to develop their career. Of course, that leaves a lot of open questions. One can even ask whether colleges are really um, able or, or capable of providing that training as compared to a, a real tennis academy. And one really has to ask the question, what is going on with American players? And does college performance or preparation have anything to do with the real drought of top American male tennis players and what will eventually um, happen in the future? This has been the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. More highlights and more clips next week. <laughs>